0: Hello, hello, I double H's. First off, sorry for coming to you late this week. It has been a bit of a nightmare. And then the world conspired against me to drop a brand new documentary series about the very case I was working on, on the night I was supposed to upload. On the upside, however, our little I double H community is growing. I have a few more new t- patrons to shout out. So hello and a huge, huge thanks to Naomi Roo, Shiona Devine, Lizzie and my big sister Sandy Dernford Slater. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support. Also, this was very cool. Nicole from the True Crime South Africa podcast has signed up as a patron of It Happened Here. In some contexts, we would be considered competition, I guess, but I don't see us as that, and I think it's really a testimony to the nature of the true crime community. Nicole, thanks so much. Today's story is one of the extraordinary in the mundane. That sounds weird, I know, naturally, but you'll soon see what I mean. There are multiple methods of killing multiple disposal MOs, a period of almost a decade from the first slayings to the sentencing and many, many locations. It involves the accusation of cults, satanism, uh, spiritual attacks, child abuse, or at least alleged child abuse, all of which would fit the definition of extraordinary. For these reasons, the Krugersdorp killings or Krugersdorp cult killings, as they have become known, captured and horrified the country. You will meet some of the strangest characters and hear bizarre, meandering stories of events and reasoning built on a flimsy pretext of belief. But this is also the story of a small group of friends in a small town, a teacher, a schoolgirl, her brother. On paper, at least at a surface level, They are both like no one you've ever encountered, and 500 people you knew growing up. I grappled with where to start this case. Certainly there is the option of just tackling it chronologically, and for the most part that is the route I've taken. But to set the scene, I want to take you to a point right in the middle of the story. A block of modest flats or apartments in Krugersdorp, called Kosana. This is a small block, just three stories tall, on the corner of Kubi and Berger Streets. At the time this was all going down, the building also housed an old age home, and next door was a little charity shop. Across the road was a hospital. There are lots of large trees lining the pavements, but it also has the particularly gritty, dusty feel of a bit of town that's down on its luck, albeit not a total shithole. Casana itself is face brick, with some plaster detailing and a simple nameplate outside. There's a green palisade fencing all round, and a few balcony patios enclosed in more fencing. The flats themselves aren't huge, or all that modern, but they are spacious in the way that contemporary flats aren't, with some nice elements like built-in cupboards, or wood or parquet flooring. Still, they're Quite tired, with design features straight out of the 70s and 80s, like beige tiles with flower motifs and drab functional kitchens. In flat 17, a high school teacher called Marinda Stane lived with a man called John Barnard. Marinda was a single mom, and it's not clear if she was in a romantic relationship with John. In flat number 1, Mirinda's kids, the eldest LaRue and his little sister Marcel, lived with another woman called Cecilia Stane. Same surname, but no relation. It's just a relatively common surname. Marinda called Cecilia her best friend, and Cecilia was not well, which is one of the reasons her kids lived there. They were at Cecilia's beck and call. At this point, you could be forgiven for thinking that this is a bit odd, but wholesome little social circle. A chosen family, brought together by care, Rather than a traditional family. But that assumption would be very, very wrong, because this little innocuous domestic setup was actually a particularly weird, cult like social structure. People brought together through the influence of an incredibly manipulative, narcissistic, and pathological liar who played the role of the eternal victim while wielding near absolute power over her followers. Through fear, faith, collateral, and friendship. When this group and their crimes were finally exposed, at least 11 people were dead, six imprisoned, multiple families utterly destroyed, and the whole town grappling with a new and uncomfortable insight into itself. This is It Happened Here, Episode 8 Devil in the Dorp, Part 2 The Krugersdorp Cult Killers. Last week, when I told you about the so-called samurai killer, Mornay Hansa, I introduced you to Krugersdorp, west of Johannesburg, and the idea of the satanic panic. Mornay's attack on his school back in 2008 didn't emerge out of a vacuum, and its ramifications fed directly into today's story. You see, Mornay's case poured fuel on a smouldering fire. It stirred up renewed fears of the occult and apparent Satanism. A small cell or sect of charismatic Christians got together under the name Overcomers Through Christ. This was originally a prayer group, but it soon spiralled, and this has been linked directly to the mornay case. Although the Overcomers were devout Christians, understanding the methods of Satan and Satanists, ...was central to what they covered in their ses- sessions together. Ria Grunewald was the woman in charge. She used to take a small group of followers to the local schools to preach and sing. She had also gone through some basic training on helping abuse victims... ...and was hoping to bring this sort of lay therapy to those in need. But she would soon be propelled in a new fringe direction. First by the fear of Satan that was stirred up by the Monet case... And then, even more so, when she was approached by a woman whose name you've already heard, Cecilia Stane. Cecilia came to Rhea with a remarkable story of abuse, specifically, ritualistic, satanic abuse. Among other things, she told Rhea that she was a 42nd generation satanic witch, and was trying to escape from the satanic church. She said she was the bride of Satan, and this and her long, long history with the satanic church had made her a subject that the satanists were not happy about losing. She needed Rhea's help, she said, as she was under nearly constant spiritual attack. Rhea, for reasons that remain insufficiently explained, ate this garbage up completely. I suspect that she found vindication and meaning in the seeming confirmation of her fears. And by all accounts, she was utterly charmed and taken in by the smart, sensitive, knowledgeable victim of Satan, the dear Cecilia, who wanted so much to start over and serve Christ. There's no drug like being needed, I guess. With Cecilia's first-hand testimony, Rhea put together a booklet and a course called Know Your Enemy, and her preaching took on an increasingly militaristic tone using words like war and army, she was calling on the Overcomers to join her in this battle for souls, and one soul above all, Cecilia's. At first, as we understand it, the Overcomers were somewhat in awe of Cecilia too. She was, by all accounts, a deeply sympathetic figure. And she soon became of great importance to everyone who did the Know Your Enemy course. Candace Rajovic is one of Rhea's friends who got drawn into Cecilia's gravitational pull. She talks about Rhea barely leaving Cecilia's side, and she herself refers to Cecilia as the best friend she ever had, someone she confided in deeply. It was also Rhea who introduced Marinda to the circle. Between them, someone was always with Cecilia. Soon, though, Candace says, Mirinda became obsessive, wanting to be with Cecilia all the time, and she was sleeping at Cecilia's flat, and often she would bring her kids, LaRue and Marcel, who were just pre-teens and teens, at that stage. Part of the growing myth of Cecilia is that she needed to stay in the flat next to the hospital because of the threat of the satanic attacks. LaRue later testified that they had called her only C., because she told them that saying her full name would summon demons. Cecilia began to tell the group about her different personalities, people that she claimed lived within her, that were so complete and fully formed that she required different blood, or at least different types, depending on which personality was currently in the driver's seat. These personalities, she said, amounted to thousands including Anya, a little girl of around three years old who was innocent like a child, spoke like a child, and even crawled around like one. She was apparently the prime target of the Satanists because she represented the innocent part of Cecilia's soul. Multiple personality disorder is the old name for this. It was a bit of a psychological trend, for lack of a better word, in the 70s and 80s, There was a very, very famous case, a book and a movie came out about a patient called Sybil. If I remember correctly, Sybil had 16 personalities, and even that was one of the more outrageous accounts of this diagnosis. So a thousand is pretty out there. There was a bit of a backlash at this point in terms of multiple personality disorder, which was largely written off for a few years by the majority of psychological professionals. Having said that, it has recently been retermed as Disassociated Identity Disorder, or DID, and in this construction, it is more accepted by professionals as a legitimate diagnosis. Still, it is very rare, and as I understand, it emerges only when the trauma that causes the splitting happens before a certain age. Cecilia also told this group about the so-called important dates in the satanic calendar, including Halloween. And on these specific dates, she said she needed extra help from the group because the satanists were using the special heightened power of those nights to launch an attack on her. They would all come together at Flat One Kosana and pray and sing gospel songs and generally be around to provide comfort and support for Cecilia because of the threat that a bunch of unnamed Satanists posed to her, because they were sacrificing people and whatnot, apparently, to try to get to her. If you know anything about the actual practices of people who self-identify as Satanists today, you're probably laughing your ass off right now. I promise I will eventually get to unpacking and debunking this, but for now, like her followers, we're going to pretend to be naive and convinced by Cecilia's version of Satanism, so just roll with it for the time being. There is footage of one of these nights. It's in the documentary series I mentioned earlier, which is called Devil's Dorp. This is brand new, it literally came out on the night that I meant to release this episode. So I decided to wait to upload this and watch the series, which, as I said, is why this episode is coming to you now. I wish that I could tell you I planned it like this. But even though I was aware of this ducky coming out, the ca- uh, this case was on my plan for a good few weeks before I realised that the release date coincided. It's really just one of those weird coincidences. Nonetheless, I like to think that it's an excellent coincidence because we get to see some of the most fascinating interviews and footage from this case, including some stuff I hadn't seen before. You do need a Showmax account to see this documentary, although I'm sure it will soon be more widely available. It is really well done, so I do recommend it and I have linked it in the show notes along with all my other sources. Anyway... Back to protecting Cecilia from the spiritual attacks One of the stories that comes out from about this time is that Cecilia's spirit would be transported out of her and the Satanists would travel in spirit to rape her During this time Rhea had to oil her hands and hold them between Cecilia's legs to protect her from this rape There have been many who claimed that Rhea and Cecilia were lovers And the same has also been said about Cecilia and Marinda. All of them deny this. And Cecilia, at this point, was married to a man and a mom to two children. She does apparently now identify as gay. I'm not sure where to file these claims of their sexual relationships. It makes sense to me that these two initially deeply Christian women would be reluctant to admit that they were sleeping with a woman. Also, there is the fact that Cecilia basically denies everything she has ever been accused of, which, in light of the testimonies, lands as pretty unbelievable. So that's the context, and I'll leave you to decide for now how you stand on the matter. If you're interested in my take, I certainly think that there is plenty that points to the fact that these were obsessive relationships, far beyond that that you'd see in regular friendships. My gut says that these relationships were sexual, however, I also don't think it matters massively. She clearly elicited adoration and loyalty from many, many people, and wasn't sleeping with all of them. The myth of her past is a lot. Among the claims that she made, and that were seemingly uncritically accepted by her friends-slash-followers, was that she was abused by her father. He reportedly hung her over a lion cage. Where these lions come from, I'm not exactly clear. But she would appear to have violent flashbacks when there were lions on TV. When one of her babyish personalities, um, possibly Anya, was at the helm, she asked Rhea to wear a specific perfume to smell like Elise who Anya said was her mum and she would say to her Mama, why are you shape-shifting? In other words, why do you smell like mom but you don't look like her? Rhea also said that this baby personality would bite her arms to the point of bleeding and then offer her, Rhea, the blood as a sacrifice or thank you for hugging her, for loving her All of this forms part of the story that Cecilia told about being brought up in and enmeshed in the situation of ritualistic and apparently Satanistic abuse. Much of this information comes from Rhea's testimony in the eventual court case, by the way. There are a number of people from the OTC, uh, which is a sort of shortening for the Overcomers through Christ, that testified that they had met Cecilia and were given the same story about a reformed Satanist but in court, Cecilia's lawyer disputed this, saying A, she'd never been a Satanist, and B, never even claimed to be. So let's take a step back and remind ourselves where we are and who the players are. We have Rhea, who was inspired by the Mornay case and the apparent link to Satanism, to start a group called The Overcomers Through Christ. She meets Cecilia and is wholly taken in by her claims and starts to define herself through this relationship, dedicating her life to protecting Cecilia. Her friends and members of this group include Candace and Marinda, as well as Marinda's kids. There is also Michaela and Zach Valentine, a young Christian couple. At some point, the intense bond between Rhea and Cecilia sours. And I have found several different explanations for why this happens. Cecilia later claims that Rhea became jealous of her and Marinda. But I've also read that Rhea starts to see through Cecilia's bullshit. The Citizen newspaper has a story that says Rhea wanted to move on to produce a know your saviour course. While Cecilia wanted to stay with their current course. Which kind of makes sense since she's the centre of that one. Whatever the story, this creates a rift in OTC. And although she's still taking care of Cecilia, Rhea is feeling more and more uncomfortable. She's contacted by someone who claims to know the truth about Cecilia. They meet up, and Rhea is horrified by what she hears. The same night as this meeting, someone tries to break into Rhea's home, which is one of the reasons she thinks Cecilia and crew are starting to keep tabs on her and perhaps even, quote, hacking her phone. Rhea asks Marinda to take over Cecilia's care. She tells her that Cecilia shouldn't come to the OT sessions anymore. Cecilia's response is as calm and reasonable as you'd expect. She says she's met with Satan and he's not playing anymore. With her hold over Rhea broken, Cecilia enters into what might be called the discard phase. I am obviously not a psychologist, but I do have some personal experience with narcissists and I've seen firsthand and read about when a narcissist feels they've lost the ability to manipulate you, they move straight into discard, casting you to one side. If you are not useful to a narcissist, you're dead to them. And Cecilia is about to try to take that literally. Cecilia starts to use her influence over people to target Rhea and the members of OTC. In July 2012, they start doing things like pouring petrol into members' cars. And there are at least two attempts to create small bombs which are placed under cars when they are parked outside the OTC meetings. One of these fails, but one does in fact explode. They also send threatening SMSs to Ria and OTC members, as well as some of the other people who are associated with Ria. They also set fire to a building, a Christian centre in Randburg, run by a friend of Ria's, and smashes some of the windows there. Cecilia leaves a note at the scene that reads, Ria, who is going to protect you now? This breakaway group are now starting to call themselves electus perdius, which means chosen by God. I think the notion of being God's chosen people is a pretty common one, but I also find myself thinking about the symbolism of this group, particularly Cecilia herself, declaring themselves chosen by God. It isn't clear, however, what God has chosen them for, because very soon, it seems like their sole purpose is whatever Cecilia wants them to do, and right now, that is revenge. She tells the group that one of the members of OTC, a woman called Natasha Berger, has said the, quote, danger prayer, some sort of sacred or perhaps sacrilegious, satanic prayer that somehow causes the death of a bunch of kids. I'm not sure what evidence, if any, she has to offer up for this, but it's clear that this group is absolutely, (laughs) forgive me, drunk metaphorical Kool-Aid. Anyway, Cecilia says Natasha has said this danger prayer, and for this she must be killed. She recruits the Valentines to do this, Zach and Michaela. On July 26th, 2012, they go around to Joy Bunzaya, who is Natasha's neighbour, and they force this old lady to write a note to Natasha, asking her to come see them urgently when she gets home. When she gets there, they attack her with a hammer. It's reportedly a blitz attack, and Natasha is killed, still grasping the note that Joy had left her. It's in her hand when the police discover her body. They also knock Joy out with a hammer, and Zach finishes the job by cutting her throat. The bodies are left at the site. Joy was 68, and Natasha 32. It's just a few weeks later, on August 13th, when the group turns on their next target, a friend of Rhea's called Reginald Bendixson. Zach and disguise themselves as police before going around to Regis. They strike him with an axe and stab him, leaving his body at the site where his wife finds him later, face down outside their home. He was 75. According to some sources, Marcel was present at this attack, but did not participate. She would have been just 14 at the time. OTC is disbanded, and Electus Podias are just getting started on their murderous and fraudulent campaign. And that is almost, almost where I leave you for this episode. But before I go, I want to tell you about the murder of Michaela Valentine. This woman, who was just 25 at the time, had been caught up in the crazy and reportedly even participated in the murder of Natasha, but she was freaking out. Michaela's mom says that she had been in a dark place and showing outward signs of this darkness and desperation. But then just before her death, she tried to get herself out. She decided she didn't want to be part of these acts and that her and her husband, Zach, must get the hell out of there. She also wants to go to the cops. And although she doesn't tell her mom all the details, she talks about getting legal help and makes it clear that her intention is to get out of what she at the time called, quote, the ministry. Zack, however, is so under the spell of Cecilia that he tells this group of merry murderers that his wife wants out and they conspire against her. On the morning of October 4th, Zack laces his young wife's coffee with a tranquilizer before leaving for work. He leaves the keys for Miranda, and she and Marcel make their way into the home of the drugged and unsuspecting Michaela. They find her in bed, and Miranda hits her in the head with a hammer. She puts the hammer down and begins stabbing her. Ultimately, she suffers over 60 stab wounds in this frenzied and brutal attack. Marcel later testifies that she watched and cried, but she did take the knife at her mother's insistence and stabbed Michaela in the side. Let's remember, this is a high school teacher and her 14-year-old daughter, and they've turned on Michaela, who had been like a big sister to Marcel until recently. Zach comes home a little later, with a real estate agent in tow, and goes through the pretense of calling for his wife, before discovering her murdered body in their bed. They naturally call the cops, and it gets sort of put off as a robbery, because her ring is taken and a few other things, but it feels wrong to the investigators from the get-go because of the sheer overkill. Marcel, just 21 at the time of the trial, weeps through the telling of this, but Zach looks on, emotionless, through this description of his wife's murder. It is one of the most chilling stories of this entire mess. But there's a lot more mess to come. Until next week, this was It Happened Here, which is a Ready for Ready production. Written by myself, Kate Thompson-Davie, with research assistance from Sam (music) Render.